Okay, we're recording. Cool. All right. All right. So, welcome to the Lennox James podcast, the safe space where we explore the highs and lows and the incredible journey of overcoming life's toughest challenges. Today, we have Brian Sachetta. He is an author, blogger, and software developer from Boston, Massachusetts. He graduated from Boston College in 2012 with a degree in management and computer science. After college, Brian put his computer science background to use as both a consultant and a writer. His first book, Get Out of Your Head, draws parallels between computer systems and the human mind and gives readers practical strategies for overcoming anxiety. Much of Brian's writing is focused on health, wellness, and personal development. He is passionate about using his skills to influence the lives of others positively. Welcome to the show, Brian. Thanks, Jennifer. I'm glad to be here. Thank you. Thank you for taking the invite. All right. So we're just going to jump right into the first question. And that is, can you briefly share your perspective on the prevalence of anxiety and depression in today's society? Yeah, for sure. I think that there's a lot of different ways to answer this question, right? So there is, there's the the question we, uh, sorry, the answer we hear a lot today in the sense of like anxiety and depression is more prevalent than ever, you know, rates are rising higher than ever. And I think to a degree that, that is accurate, correct, all that. Yeah. Um, but I think there are also some nuances there in the sense that like, maybe we didn't report as well on these um, diseases as we did in the past. Um, so it, it's a little bit of like, uh, there, there's, you know, there's two sides to every argument, but I, but what I could definitely say, right, is that the statistics themselves are going up, whether or not that's because more people are reporting, more people are sharing, more people are willing to have conversations. I can't say for sure. But what I can say is that if you look at our society and uh, I guess the activities that you know we, we get ourselves into on a regular basis and the way that um, society and communities are, are starting to reform themselves or already have reformed themselves, mm -hmm. I think some of those broad societal changes are not that healthy. And I think a lot of those things, and I, I'm purposely being vague for a second here, I'll get into it in a, in a minute. Um, I think some of those, so, uh, I, sorry, I kind of lost my track for a second. So uh, some of those things are not that healthy, right? And I think um, those unhealthy activities are leading to more uh, cases of anxiety and depression. So if we jump into something yeah. specific, right? So, you know, let's just say previously, it was like, we used to work and live in smaller communities, we knew our neighbors, we had gatherings, um, mm -hmm. there was trust in our communities, we could go to somebody down the street and say, hey, you know, I'm dealing with this issue, I'm having this problem, my family is is going through XYZ, and you leaned on your community, right? Mm -hmm. Nowadays, I'm not saying that doesn't happen at all. But I think there is more of a trend towards we live in our own little isolated bubbles, right? Like I, you know, I'll speak for myself, right? I live by myself in the city of Boston. Um, and even though it has its benefits, it also has its drawbacks, right? Where it's like working from home is cool, but if you work from home every day of the week and you don't talk to anybody, that gives you a lot of time to go into your head, right? And then mm -hmm. you pick up your phone, you open social media, you start comparing yourself to other people and you generate all these terrible feelings in your own mind and body. And so- I guess just kind of putting a cap on this for a second is is me basically saying, sure, there may be some nuances that we are not aware of in the 
reporting of the statistics around anxiety and depression, but I'd be you know, pretty fairly confident that given the way that society has started to change in recent decades, um, those things are definitely contributing to the statistics, um, regardless of how accurate or, you know, um, I guess some of the nuances in those statistics may be. That's something you say was very key for me. Um, I worked from home full time for Apple um, some years back, 2018 or so. And at first I was like very, very excited. But the more I got into it, working from home Monday through Friday is not for me. Uh, a hybrid schedule is pretty ideal. Um, my anxiety increased and, and my schedule was the weirdest schedule. I think I worked like 11 to like eight or nine. By the time I got off, people were already preparing to go to bed. So I wasn't really talking to anyone. And so, yeah, that definitely increased my um anxiety. Living alone, I'm just basically talking to customers all day, but not having a chance to really communicate with friends and family. Yeah, it, it's really difficult. I mean, um, I, I was saying to somebody the other night, like I had uh, my company had its holiday party, right? And we were... I was talking to a coworker and we were talking about the fact that, you know, both of us work from home a lot. Mm -hmm. And if you think about like, I, I, you know, I've been trying to get to the office more to connect with more people, have conversations. Cause like, we really do need that. Like our bodies and our minds uh, need that. If you think about like, okay, so um, if I work from home five days a week and then like maybe on the weekends I do some, you know, I hang out with friends or mm -hmm. I do some activities or whatever, like Monday through Friday. Sure. You may like your job, um, and that can help, right? But even if you do like your job, if you're not like connecting with other people, if you don't see anybody on a daily basis, like your apartment, your house, your condo, whatever it is, like is like a borderline, like it's like a nice prison cell, if that makes sense, right? Mm -hmm. Or it's like it's it's like it's sort of um, what's the solitary? It's like solitary confinement, you know? It's like okay, yeah, I got a nice couch and a nice bed and all that, but like there's nobody around, there's nobody to talk to, and so um, I guess you know the difficulty with a situation like that is um, and, and with anxiety and depression in general is like one thing that I, uh, that I say sometimes is like, I wish that our bodies, like rather than being like, okay, I'm, I'm isolated. I'm alone. I'm anxious. I'm depressed. Like those feelings make us want to um, sort of like, they, they make us want to pull ourselves out of society, right. To, to hide even further, mm -hmm. which is like, which almost doesn't make sense because, if it's like we are lonely and we, you know, being lonely creates these feelings with us, within us, it should, they should in a perfect world, right? It would be like, they would create some sort of, those feelings would be more like motivation to go spur us out into the world and mm -hmm. say, I got to go talk to people and whatnot. Um, and so you get this like vicious cycle almost where you're like, okay, I already feel bad. And now that I feel bad, I'm going to sort of, you know, cast myself off from the world. And then by virtue of that, I'm going to be even more anxious and more lonely and depressed. And then you get, again, you get this cycle going. So it's, it can be really difficult and challenging. I think sometimes, you know, just kind of taking a step back and being able to say to yourself, like, I'm recognizing what's going on here. And even though my feelings are telling me to do X, Y, Z, like I kind of have to go in a different fashion. Otherwise I'm going to be stuck in this cycle for a while. Absolutely. Thank you for sharing your insight. Sure. All right. So question um, two, <clears throat> how effective are mindfulness and relaxation techniques in alleviating symptoms of anxiety and depression? And do you have any specific practices you recommend? 
For sure. So I think an important place to start on this one is the actual definition of what mindfulness is, right? So we hear it a lot in uh, like, you know, in the news and in the media, we read about it and headlines and stuff mm -hmm. like that. People, oh, be mindful and whatnot. But let, let's just start with the definition itself. So mindfulness is basically the practice of bringing your attention or your awareness to what it is that you're doing, right? Mm -hmm. And I think why it's important to start there and why mindfulness is really important in general is the idea that like, we are so distracted in today's society, right? There are so many things vying for our attention, mm -hmm. um, you know, on the day on a daily basis, right? I, I think about like being at work and it's like, I mean, you've got emails to attend to you have, if it's Slack or Microsoft Teams or whatever the, you know, the instant messenger platform is mm -hmm. that you use, you've got all these conversations and messages coming in from different people and you have to respond to them and then you have to jump on zoom meetings and then you have to get on a call and whatnot and there are just so many things vying for our attention that like and and also like you think about the fact that some of those communications are stress invoking right where it's like oh geez am i going to meet this deadline am i going to get back to this person on time and so all these different things really create a burden on us and on our minds and our mental health and so um you know it's not always easy in the sense that like we, we don't always have the time or ability to necessarily be mindful because we have all these external things that are vying for our attention. Um, but I guess the fact that we live in this always on quote unquote kind of state um, makes it all the more important for us to engage in mindfulness when we can. And so, you know, tying it back into anxiety and depression a little bit, sometimes people will say, right, that anxiety, and then this is not always the case, but like, um, lo very loosely speaking, somebody might say that anxiety is sort of the experience you get when you are living mentally off in the future, right? So I like to say that anxiety is future oriented fear. So it's kind of that same feeling you get when you're scared, but it's over something that isn't like right in front of you. Mm -hmm. So the example I give is fear is being in the woods and a bear, you know, comes in front of you on the on your path that you're walking. Mm -hmm. anxiety is worrying about or thinking about being faced by a bear two weeks from now. And so we take all that information and then we kind of tie it back together and we say, okay, if anxiety is living off in the future um, and I am able, like, again, like none of this stuff is easy. Uh, it, it is simple, but it's cer certainly not easy. Mm -hmm. But if you can say to yourself, like, if I am able to get myself back into the present moment and focus on what is happening in front of me, then that future oriented piece and the fear that comes alongside it theoretically can go away. So that's why I think that uh, the general idea of mindfulness is really important. Um, the other thing too, right, kind of connected to this is that we create so much of our suffering through our own thoughts. Yeah. And so if you think about it, 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 this is all very related, right? It's like those thoughts that we're thinking, right? We're saying, oh, you know, am I, am I going to be able to pick my kid up from, from daycare or school later on today? Am I going to miss that deadline? Am I going to be able to pay that bill? If we then like, so those are all things that are kind of, again, oriented towards the future. Mm -hmm. If we are able, again, not, not always easy, um, but if we're able to look at what we're doing right now and just say, hey, you know, I'm making breakfast right now. And all I'm going to think about right now is making the breakfast, right? If I'm watching a movie, I'm doing that. I'm not doing something else. Mm -hmm. So the idea of mindfulness is kind of recentering yourself around the activity that you're currently perform performing. And by virtue of doing that, again, not easy, but cutting off the thoughts that 
sometimes come into your mind about things in the future that bring you the angst and the fear and the depression and all that stuff. So I do think it really is important. But again, I, I really stress the fact that it's not easy because it's not right. Our minds are always moving so quickly. And there are so many things in the world that scare us. And so that none of this is to say like, hey, just just be mindful and just be present because it's it's so much more difficult than that. Um, but that is the solution as simple as it may be. Gotcha. That's something that I had to learn to practice more about um, mindfulness and relaxing techniques. And so now that I've kind of put it into a, a practice, I'm more mindful. And so just learning some different uh, coping mechanisms in my coaching sessions, I'm able to now help manage my clients when they have increased symptoms of anxiety, stress, or depression. And so most times what I'm seeing is that these practices, again, like you say, um, bring attention to being present in the moment, cultivate awareness, and promote relaxation. And something else I was reading the other day, um, let me see, I wrote it in my notes. Research suggests that mindfulness-based interventions can contribute to improvements in mood, stress reduction, and overall mental well-being. And that is a very true statement. So as a recovery coach, I find myself doing a lot of self-care and mindfulness myself so that I can be effective for my clients. Definitely. And I, I like that word that you use the self-care, right? We think about you, you had asked part of the question was like, what are some relaxation techniques? And um, I, I guess I went too far on the the first part of the question that I didn't <laughs> that I didn't answer this. But if you look at the word self-care, right, or you think about what constitutes self-care, and a lot of the time it will be techniques that are based in relaxation or techniques that bring you back to the the present moment and whatnot, right? It's like maybe a self-care technique is like you like to go get your nails done. And it's because it's like you're sitting in the chair, you're having a conversation with the mm -hmm. person who's working on your nails. Maybe like, you know, I I, I think like past girlfriends have told me it's like maybe they serve drinks there maybe they serve food there you're hanging out you're talking with the girls and whatnot and so those kinds of things are awesome because they bring you back into the present moment where like your fears are not immediately in front of you right you're not thinking mm -hmm. about those things it's 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 a nice way to detach from some of the anxiety that the world brings us um you know if i talk about my own self-care or relaxation techniques for for a second um I, it's funny because it's like sometimes just like getting off of the, you know, the computer, the phone, all our electronic yeah. devices is like, because we are so far in one direction in terms of like, we're on technology all the time, we're on our devices all the time, just mm -hmm. getting off them for a second can like almost feel like a self care technique or a re relaxation yeah. technique, even though it's literally just kind of like doing nothing, you know. Um, but I also I like sitting down and like trying to read a book. Um Again, I guess the, the difficult part there, right, is a lot of our books now are like on these electronic devices. And so it's like if, you know, if you're going to pick a relaxation technique or a self-care technique that revolves around an electronic device, like do your best or see like, I guess, you know, recommendation to the listener is um, see if like you could maybe put that device on do not disturb mode or airplane mode. So that way, like you can, again, remain present, right? You can be like, okay, I may have my device open, but I am focused on reading that book and sinking into the relaxation rather than being like, 
well, I, you know, I have the, the, the book on my iPad and now I got a text message from this person and a Slack message from that person. Mm-hmm. Um, so things like that are cool and, and helpful. Um, I, ha- I One thing that I like to do, I like to make chamomile tea. It's supposed to like calm you down, calm down your nervous system. Mm-hmm. A lot of people will like drink it before bed, which is, which is great. Um, I just find that, yeah, you know, you, you go to work, you're in these like high stress states all day and sure, like some people are better at managing that stress than others. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I'm not always that great at it. And so like, for me, being able to like sit down at the end of the day and be like, I'm putting the device away, I'm making some tea, and maybe I just sit on the couch. Maybe I listen to a podcast, but like if okay. I listen to the podcast, like I'm closing my eyes, I'm not like also on my phone at the same time and whatnot, mm-hmm. just being able to simplify things, right? Because it's like um, as great as our modern world is and how even though it's awesome that we can multitask or, or you know, try to multitask and do a bunch of different things at once and whatnot, like our brains are kind of not built for that, right? And a lot of these right. these new technological inventions are only like 10, 20, 50, 100 years old. And so it's like we're working with hardware, as in our brains, that was built a long time ago, you know, tens of thousands of years ago. Um, and the devices that we have these days, although they help us get a lot done, they don't necessarily jibe with, you know, our, our internal wiring and our internal hardware. Um, and that's why I think it's so important at times to to you know come back to simple things and the cup of tea and just focusing on uh, one thing at a time. Gotcha. But I am so glad that you mentioned some of these techniques as far as self care <clears throat> because a lot of times I I run into individuals who will say, "Well, I would practice self care more, but it's so expensive." And I'm like, "No, it really doesn't have to be." Like for me, and everyone's self care is different, but I could watch reruns of Bonanza, Laverne and Shirley all day long with my favorite drink, um, maybe some cheeses. And that's that's really self-care for me, something very inexpensive. Or I can just go outside if the weather's, you know, fair, take a walk. So I try to encourage people just, you know, sometimes there are things you can do right in your home. Epsom salt, put it in your bath water sit in there and just chill. Absolutely. It does not need to be expensive. I, I would honestly say that like it can be expensive, but it like kind of shouldn't be in a way, you know what I mean? Like in, right. the thing too, right. Is um, as self-caring as it can be to be like, Hey, I'm going to go treat myself to like a nice dinner. The the difficulty with things like that is then you put an expectation on, well, I spent $300 on this really fancy dinner, yep. but then I didn't like it that much. And so now I've created some sort of, um, you know, stress or disparity in my mind around what the thing is. So yeah, I think the simplicity can go a long way. Absolutely. Okay. So my next question, in what ways can physical activity contribute to improve mental health? And what types of exercises do you suggest for someone dealing with anxiety or depression? For sure. So a lot of different ways to start with this one. I would say that like, what I like to say first is that like our bodies are really designed to move, right? If you think about how most of us spend our days and, and this is just, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a reality. Like I'm not saying that we shouldn't sit down and, and do work and go to school and all those things. Like those are mm-hmm. necessary things in, in this um, society that we have, have built, right. And that we live in. But at the same time, like 
our bodies are are built and des designed to move. And when we don't move, like a lot of bad things can happen. So uh, not just on the mental health front, but also on the physical front. I, you know, personally, I've actually been going to physical therapy for the last six months, uh, like we started having all these back issues. And as I've talked to my physical therapist, like it's been a very interesting learning experience for me where she has basically said like, if you work a desk job and you don't do all these different exercises to, you know, increase the strength of your back muscles and your stabilizers and all that, like it is inevitable that you are going to face back pain as a virtue of sitting down all day, being hunched over a computer and whatnot. And so that is a physical health piece, but also like there's a mental health piece there too, right? Where it's like for several months this year, I couldn't sleep and then not being able to sleep because of the back pain affects your mental health. And then, yeah. you know, for me too, it was like, I have a little bit of uh, hypochondria and I'm starting to think about like, I don't know why I'm in so much pain. Is 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 there something seriously wrong with me, right? And so it's like um, physical health is mental health in the sense that like, if you feel good physically, you're you're more likely to feel better mentally. And that, uh, you, you know, talking about cycles and spirals and whatnot. And it's like, that creates something of like a, a positive cycle feedback loop, whatever you want to call it, where it's like, Yep, I'm feeling good every day. So then I'm able to go get things done. And then I feel accomplished. I feel proud because of those things. And so that's important. Um, but then there's also like just the the piece of, you know, physical activity. So like the the effect, the direct effect that it has on our mental health, maybe not the the indirect as much. And so there's actually a lot of studies that will will show that physical activity can be just as beneficial, if not uh, more beneficial on our mental health or for our mental health. Um, as psychotropic drugs. And I, you know, so I guess one thing that's funny is I think one of the large studies there came from Duke. I, I could be wrong, but I believe it came from Duke University. Um, and the the other the other kind of caveat or other piece I wanted to add in here was that, you know, I don't say something like that to tell folks anything about, you know, their their medication regimens or anything like that. That's between you and your doctor, uh, the listener and their doctor. Um, and I also like, it's not meant to be like, Hey, because this one, you know, thing that we could engage in, uh, might be more beneficial than something else. That's not to say that like you give up one or the other, right? It's like, um, when thinking about mental health, I think it's important to think about, um, the holistic picture, right. And say like, Hey, exercise can be beneficial. Self-care can be beneficial. Medication might be beneficial. And so it's our job to sort of explore all these different avenues and see which of those techniques work best for us and lean into all of those and create something of a, um, you know, a framework that boosts our mental health overall. So I guess getting back to the question of like specifically what can physical activity do for our mental health. So there's the broad statement of saying that it is beneficial for our minds. But then there is sort of the in the weeds idea of like or, or more, you know, just more detail oriented idea um, of thinking that like. So if we go back to what we were talking about previously, where we said presence is important. We don't want to be you know thinking about the future. We don't want to be stewing on our fears of things that have yet to come. It, when we exercise, right, like it forces us to get out of our heads and back into our bodies, right? If you are running through town, I'm not saying that it's impossible, but it's pretty difficult to be stewing over all these ideas while you are running. Like if you're at your top speed or whatever, there's just not enough energy and physical capacity or mental capacity for you to be able to be like, I'm running at 10 miles an hour 
And I'm also like, you know, running through all these scenarios in my mind of how am I going to pay my bills? And is this person like me? Am I going to mess up in this social situation? So it's a, it's a nice departure from, you know, the, the loops that we run in our heads. And I guess, um, you know, I could talk about this stuff for hours, but the last, the last piece that I guess I would just add here, right. Is like when uh, the, when we're like sitting at our desks all day, right. Like again, work can be great. Uh, especially if you're engaged in it, you're passionate about it and whatnot. But if you're like sitting at your desk all day, like you're sort of, I, I wouldn't say trapped, but you are there with your thoughts, right? And I have had many scenarios in my own life where it's like, I'm on a project, there's not a lot to do, but I have to be at the office sitting in front of the computer. And, you know, you're at an office, you can't like go on ESPN.com or like, you know, <laughs> websites that don't pertain to work. It's just not a great right. look, right? And so- the difficulty with something like that is if you have that kind of situation or if you find yourself in in a uh, a situation like that, you might be like, well, I guess I'll go on to this, you know, I'll go on to like a work-related website and then just stare at the screen um, and kind of do nothing. And while you're doing that, it's like, it, it's almost a natural thing for your brain to start, you know, thinking about all these other things unrelated to the task at hand, right? And so the reason why I personally, I mean, there's so many reasons I love exercise, but like one of the reasons I love that is like, if, you know, let's just say like maybe a couple hours a day, like we find ourselves bored at work and we're we're going off on all these thought exercises that are not beneficial for our mental health, getting out from behind the computer, you know, going for a run, going for a walk, going to yoga class, even doing meditation or just, you know, taking some time for our physical bodies allows us to reconnect, you know, with our, um, with our bodies themselves and get out of, uh, you know, those sort of looping mental states that we, we get ourselves into. So it's, um, there's so many different topics to talk about within, you know, the broader category of exercise, but, you know, general point is that it is really beneficial for our physical health, but it's also really beneficial for our mental health. Um, and I, you know, personally, I think I've gotten to a point where it's like when I was 18, it was like, let's go to the gym and lift weights and look good and all that. Mm -hmm. And not that I, I don't want that anymore, but like, the main reason that I lift these days or I run these days is just to like, is just to help my mental health and, and to feel better mentally on a daily basis. I feel as though if like, for me, if, if you said, Hey, you can't work out for a month or you can't work out for a week or whatever, that, that would be like a, a mild form of hell for me. I, I can agree with a lot of what you have said. So um, I was born with some congenital issues with my my spine and my neck, and so thankfully they've they've gotten a lot better. But I've had to do a lot of physical therapy. So of course, like you said, back pain, neck pain that was impacting my sleep, which of course impacted my mental health. And so going to the gym has always been my go to because it really just gives me this huge boost of mental energy I feel like I just have like a, a mental clarity and so now my my exercise routine is more of a modified but I still enjoy going to the gym so you know sometimes some of my friends will say, say like you know I can't afford a gym membership so I'll encourage them hey the weather's going to be nice tomorrow come walk with me you know let's let's get outside I was like and even if you don't want to do that turn your radio on and jam to your favorite songs and just dance, you know, get some activity in. And so as far as at work, I have all of this um, ergonomic stuff, mouse pad, the, the, the cushion to sit on for my back, all this kind of stuff. 
even with all of that adaptive stuff, I still have it programmed into my schedule. I have to get up, not only physically, because one, my body will physically, my joints will almost feel like they are locking up. But if I sit there, I promise you, I will start thinking about other things, other tasks, other than what I'm supposed to be focused on. So yeah, about every 30 minutes or so, I'll get up, I'll walk from my building over to the next building, just a quick five minutes. Come back, I'm focused, and then I finish my task. But that's something just that's just built into my schedule. It's very helpful for me too. That's that's awesome. You're uh you are definitely on top of the ball there. And yeah, I mean, you know, kind of common thread through some of these subjects is like again, money can help us, you know, in certain situations. Like if we have money, we and we can go to a nice gym. That's great, but it shouldn't deter us or prevent us from doing these things, right? Mm -hmm. It's like um. You like you said, you can walk around your neighborhood. You can do push-ups and sit-ups in your own house. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, okay, maybe like maybe if you buy like a you know a couple weights that you could lift at your own house, like sure, that's a one-time investment of a of a smaller amount of money than you know paying for a gym for the entire year. But yeah, like these things, like we should, even though money can sometimes again get in the way of these things, like we should not let that prevent us from engaging in this stuff. If you think back, right, it's like let's say 10,000 years ago, 20,000 years ago, there were no gyms, there were no, you know, bench presses and all that. And so it's like, we still found ways to stay active. And you know, mm -hmm. the, the the natural way to stay active, right, is to walk around, run around, yeah. um, do some like, I, I, I maybe physical labor is the wrong word, but like, you know, pick some stuff up and put some stuff down and whatnot. And yeah. it's like, the main thing is just engaging, like, is engaging your body. It's not necessarily like, you know, bench pressing a certain amount of weight or whatever. So yeah, I mean, I love the fact that you said that. Um, and the cool thing too, these days, right, is like, you go on the internet and you say, like, you Google, like workouts at home, or workouts, like without yeah. weights or whatever. And there's so much stuff that you can do Absolutely. with your own body weight. Um, yeah, maybe you might need to buy a yoga mat, but you can get one on Amazon for like 20 bucks or something. Yeah. And so it's like, this stuff is more accessible than it has ever been. So yeah, mm -hmm. I, I think that's an important um, note to put in there. Absolutely. All right. So next, we're going to talk about cognitive behavioral techniques. And so my question is, can you discuss the role of cognitive behavioral techniques in addressing negative thought patterns associated with anxiety and depression? Sure. So the funny thing about the question, right? Um, and this is this is no slight on you, right? It's just a, it's it's funny in the sense that like the definition of cognitive behavioral therapy includes the piece of, you know, managing negative thought patterns. So if, if you look like there, there are differing definitions on the internet, but one definition is that CBT, uh, which we'll use as an abbreviation mm -hmm. is, um, a form of mental health treatment that helps you recognize unhelpful thought patterns or behaviors, um, and possibly, you know, replace those things with, with other thoughts, with other behaviors, um, to benefit your mental health, to benefit your mood and all that. Right. So, um, the way this is this is speaking broadly because it's you know CBT is a a, a broad ca uh, class of of treatment. And there's all sorts of different things you can do with it, right? And there's a lot of books that are written on CBT. It's it's sort of more like a um, a school of thought in some ways than it is necessarily like do X, do Y, do Z, right? Um, but the general the general idea of CBT is to look at the relationship between your thoughts, your feelings, and your behaviors, and see how they all influence uh, one another. Um, and then as you are 
looking at different situations and, you know, let's say emotional states in your life with a critical eye, you are then better uh, able to say, okay, in this specific situation, I felt a certain way. And maybe I felt that way because I thought a certain thing. And then maybe as a product of thinking or feeling those certain things, I then acted in a certain fashion, right? And so it's it's sort of like stepping back, putting some, some distance between ourselves and an event in our lives um, and being able to break it down and say, hey, you know, there are more, there's, there's more here than just me reacting to whatever it is in front of me. It's like, I can think, I can feel, and I can act. And those three things affect each other. Um, it's You'll often see like the CBT triangle, which is basically a triangle with um, six arrows in total that all point at one another. So it'll basically say that, you know, your thoughts affect your feelings, your feelings affect your thoughts, your feelings also affect your behaviors, be your behaviors also affect your feelings, and so on and so forth, right? Um, and so I guess the, you know, if we look at a specific instance of anxiety that we deal with, right? We may say that, um, okay, so there was a stimulus in our lives where um, let's say we got a letter in the mail that said um, we forgot to pay our credit card bill or the bank was threatening foreclosure upon us or whatever, right? And so there's a stimulus there that then precipitate certain things in our minds, right? So maybe our first reaction is to start thinking in a certain way and say, oh goodness, the bank is actually going to foreclose upon me. I'm going to be, you know, without a home, I'm going to be living on the streets. I'm going to like, and then from there, I'm not going to be able to support myself. I'm going to lose my job, X, Y, Z, right? So that is like, again, let's just say that this event has happened and we're sort of uh, retroactively trying to not diagnose it, but we're we're trying to look with a critical eye at it and and figure out um, what what we did or or um, what within it made us do certain things. And so there we started that with that that thinking piece, right? And then we could say, okay, after that happened, like how did I feel, right? And you would probably we'd probably say, you know, you felt pretty darn anxious, right? The thought of losing your home or where you live. Uh, is a really scary idea and one that nobody, you know, nobody would want to go through something like that. The thought of losing your job makes you feel, uh, again, pr pretty anxious and also just like uncertain as to like what your future is going to be like. And so, again, we're just starting to try to figure out, like, draw this picture as to what is the chain of events, right? And then from there, it's like, okay, what happened next? So if we talked, we talked about how we thought, how we feel, and then behavior, right? It's like behavior was maybe, um, you know, these feelings made me act in a certain way where uh, then a coworker called me and I, I sort of lashed out at them because I was in a high stress state and I felt terrible. And it was like, I was trying to uh, unleash some of that stress, just, just get it out of me. Right. And so CBT allows us to look at situations like that and say, okay, Maybe there was this stimulus here that that kind of sparked certain things within me. Mm -hmm. But that stimulus, like once I, I you know, it's it's sort of a subconscious process, right? But it's like I took that stimulus. So let's just say that I did all this stuff, right? I took that stimulus and I used it as a reason to start running these patterns in my mind. And then as I ran those patterns in my mind, I generated specific negative feelings in my body. And then as I generated those feelings and somebody, you know, wanted to reach out and talk to me because I felt the way that I did, I 
you know, it wasn't their fault, but I lashed out at them when they were like, Hey, you know, where, where's that project? Like, are you going to meet the deadline or whatever? And I, I just yelled at them because I, I, you know, I was in this specific state. So CBT allows us to look at situations like that critically and say, and look at the chain um, of events, right. And say, okay, so yeah, I did get that notice in the mail, but I then thought all those things that made me feel that way. And then, you know, sort of nudged me into the way, uh, nudged me to act the way that I acted. And so if, even though it's difficult, if I were to say, the next time I get a notice like that in the mail, rather than start, you know, stewing over scary ideas, I'm going to say, let's figure out how we can fix this problem, right? Then maybe those thoughts lead to different feelings that then lead to different actions. So maybe it's like, I'm going to say, hey, you know what, I, I think I'm going to get through this. Let's come, let's sit down, figure out a plan, you know, count up all my money, figure out a way if I need to, you know, get a second job to support myself and pay the bills for a little while, then I will do that. And then maybe that, you know, that chain of thought creates some certainty in my body that makes me feel, even though it's, again, a scary situation and one that, you know, nobody would want to deal with, makes me feel a little bit more certain, a little bit more confident. And then let's say from there, somebody, you know, a coworker calls me or whatever, I find myself then in a less stressed out state and I'm better able to have that conversation with that person rather than lash out that uh, lash out at them as a result of, you know, the first two pieces in the chain. So CBT is is really, you know, this this framework uh, of looking at the connection between those three things um, and being able to put it, put some distance between ourselves and those items, right? I think one of the difficulties with anxiety is that we attach to our thoughts and we kind of think like, oh, um, you know, it's my responsibility to chew these these scary ideas over and to solve them and to figure them out and whatnot. Mm-hmm. When CBT says like, hey, I'm giving you permission to take a step back and say, those are the thoughts that you had. Now, at the same time, like even, even though you had them, you can, if you want to, you can change them, right? It's, it, there's no rule that says like, because a certain thing happened in your life, you have to feel and you have to think a certain way. And so it trains us to be able to make that recognition and then shift into more positive, uh, I guess, uh, thoughts, feelings, and actions moving forward. So as you integrate CBT into your own life, into your own situations and practices, um, again, it, it puts some more distance between you and certain events in your life. And so you can then sit down and say, oh, I am now recognizing that I'm feeling the way I'm feeling because I'm thinking in this negative fashion. And as soon as I change the way that I think, and you know that's not that's not like a Broadway, like, oh, I'm all of a sudden going to be a different kind of thinker. It's more rather than stewing on the fear or the things that you know, are scary. I'm going to think about something that is a little bit more positive that then brings us to better feelings with, which can lead us to better actions. And because it's a triangle with, you know, the arrows that point every which way, mm-hmm. these things also create something of, um, they can create vicious cycles. They can also create positive feedback loops, um, or at the very least, like feedback, f- feedback loops that support us. So, um, it's certainly an important tool to have in your toolkit, but it is a little broad, right? I'm kind of trying to use an example uh, to put some concreteness behind it, when if you just said like thoughts, feelings, and and behaviors, um, that's a little abstract to think about. Gotcha. So, I guess the long term goal for CBT is a therapy to teach people to be more proactive versus reactive when it comes to their thought processes. That is part of it, and part of it is is the mindfulness piece too. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and also just understanding that like 
you know, you, we do have some control, even though it's difficult, we have some control over, you know, these, these various situations that we encounter. I think when I like, just as an example, when I look back, right, uh, as a teenager, I would get scary ideas that popped into my head. And I would be like, I, you know, for some reason, because I, you know, I, I didn't know anything about this stuff, I would say, well, this idea popped into my head. And so like, I now need to go fight it off, I need to go out with it, out think it, whatever it may be. So let's just say, I had an exam coming up. And it was like, Oh, my brain is like, dude, you're gonna fail this exam, right? I took that as sort of evidence to be like, okay, I now need to go fight off that idea and be like, no, I, you know, I, here's why I'm not going to fail. And I'm going to do all these different things and whatnot. When in reality, like a lot of the time, again, simple, but not easy. All you really need to do. And I, I'm not trying to, I'm not, I'm not trying to make it. I'm not trying to make it sound simple. Uh, sorry. I'm not trying to make it sound easy. I'm just trying to say that it is a, a simple technique. All you really need to do is drop that thought. Even again, it's so, uh, it's, this is what it all boils down to and is why I'm sort of agitated as I say this, right? Is because it's the simplest thing in the world. And yet it is what we struggle with yep. for so many years, you know, mm -hmm. um, because it is the thought that creates the feeling in your body. And so why, why I'm telling this story and, you know, why sort of answering your question is, um, the benefit for me, one of the biggest benefits that CBT had for me was it instructed me, it, it, it taught me that I don't have to pick up every single thought that pops into my head, right? The, you know, thoughts are, uh, you know, if you talk to psychiatrists and neuroscientists and stuff like that, they'll say, we might have like 60,000 thoughts a day. And if you, if you really look at that number and you say 60,000, that's a lot of thoughts. Well, you don't, you know, if you actually sat down and, and analyzed every single one of those thoughts, you, you'd run out of time pretty quickly, right? Yeah. So it, it allowed me to say, okay, even though a thought pops into my head and I want to analyze it and I want to you know, try to outrun it or outthink it or outwit it, I don't need to do that. In mm -hmm. fact, me trying to do that is actually creating a lot more angst and anxiety and fear and depression and all stress, all these different negative feelings in my body. So I, you know, by virtue of learning that I was able to, in some, sometimes give myself permission to drop those thoughts. Gotcha. Thank you for educating me more on this and our viewers who will watch later. So um, at my office is actually connected to the local library. So I'm going to check out a book because I want to kind of get some more information on this. So I thank you for, for educating me as well about CBT. Sure. All right. So my next question, how important is social support in managing mental health? And what advice do you have for someone seeking support from their friends, families, or um, within their community? Definitely. We, we talked indirectly about this already, right at the beginning of the show, um, when we talked about working from home and possibly mm -hmm. like if we live by ourselves, that the fact that even though working from home has its benefits, mm -hmm. um, being alone all the time is is not necessarily a good thing. Maybe once in a while, but but not all the time. Mm -hmm. And I think you know there's a lot of research out there that shows that you know humans are very social creatures, and when we are lonely, our bodies react as if there is like a physical threat in front of us. And so if you think about being in that heightened state all the time 
as a result of being lonely, that is a bad place to be, right? Mm-hmm. Um, if we look at what does that mean, right? That might mean that you have a lot of cortisol running through your veins, right? Because that's cortisol is the stress hormone. Mm-hmm. And so it's like, if you are alone or lonely all the time, and you are, you know, creating, you know, that loneliness, if it, if to your brain, that then looks like a threat, your brain is then going to say, turn on the fight or flight nervous system, you know, the, the, uh, the sort of automated stress response. And that stress response is going to spit a bunch of cortisol and adrenaline into your bloodstream. Mm -hmm. If you don't address that quote unquote threat of the loneliness, right? It is possible that you will live in a heightened state for some indeterminate or extended amount of time. And that's not a good thing, right? We want that stress response to be used in places where there are actual threats in front of us. And, you know, I I could go on more of a tangent on this, you know, there's a lot of stressors in our lives and things that are um, sort of more intangible of events on the calendar and things that we stew over that, that activate that stress response and make us afraid. And, you know, that's, that's okay. And, you know, and, and I guess if we did a different podcast or whatever, we could talk about that more. Uh, but, but the main thing, right. Is like, if our entire lives, right. If we live, if we work from home and five days a week, we are by ourselves and we are activating that stress response five days a week, that is not a good thing. So getting back to the actual question that you asked in terms of like, you know, how is social, like, what is the importance of social support in the context of mental health? The, the first piece, right. Is like, if you if we say that our bodies react to loneliness as if it were a real physical threat, then we would say, okay, for our mental and physical health, we need to make sure that we are surrounded by people, maybe not all the time, but we need to, you know, we need to feed our our drive for social connection. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I guess taking it one step further or going a little bit deeper, right, is like um there is being with people and there is having conversations with people and all that. But then there is kind of more of what you asked in the question of like, okay, so if you are dealing with anxiety, if you are dealing with depression, like how do you use your social support to help with those things? Mm -hmm. And so it's, it's hard because like, you know, I'm not going to sit here and say that like you should use your parent or your sibling or your best friend as a replacement for your therapist. right? Right. But what I will say is that when you have, closely knit ties and you can lean on people when you are struggling that can help a lot you know like um one thing that fascinates me and i, I you know it's, I, I, sometimes it's difficult like on podcasts with a broad audience talking about you know men and women and gender roles and all that but one thing that always has fascinated me right is like i would say that women i think women are so much better with their emotional health than men are And I think part of the reason for that is like, they are willing to actually talk about real things, right? It's like, I will, you know, I'll talk to a cousin, my mom, whoever, and they'll be like, oh, we had a girl's night out. And like, we went and drank wine and we talked about all our problems and now we feel better now. And I'm like, I'm not saying that to, you know, simplify it or uh, be flippant or anything like that. I think that is actually brilliant, right? The idea that you can go and talk to somebody and sort of like, this is not the exactly the right term, but like you can sort of air out your dirty laundry, right? If you if you use that as a visual, right? If, if, if there is dirt in that laundry and you air it out, the dirt goes somewhere else, right? And so it's like having those conversations can help you get the emotions out of your body. And that's, again, I... 
I'm not saying that it's a clear divide between men and women, but I do think women are much better at that than men. And I know within my own friendships, like I have some wonderful friends and we have some great and fun conversations, but I do think that women are better at talking about like their individual problems, whereas men, and I will put my hand up, I am often afraid to talk about some of the things that I am struggling with, you know? Mm -hmm. And that's why I think the books have been helpful for me in doing my own writing because it's it's allowed me to get my own emotions out there uh, and outside of myself so that that way they don't stew as much anymore. So again, I, I know I go on, on these tangents a little bit, but getting back to the question itself, we all need those, those bonds and those connections to be able to sit down with somebody and be like, you know, when somebody says like, hey, how are you doing? Unfortunately, in society today, it's become this question that is an afterthought, right? It's like, if you ask, it, 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 obviously, like, in some ways, if, if I run into 100 people on the street today, and I say, hey, how you doing? Like, you know, there, there kind of isn't enough time in the day for everybody to be like, well, I'm not doing well. And here's why and whatever. So I so I obviously get it from like a, a customs standpoint. Yeah. But, um, you know, it's, it's obvious that like, we're not all honest when we answer that question. Because it's like most of most of us, I would say at least some of us every day are not doing well, right? And the answer that you you customarily hear uh, is that we're doing good or we're doing well or whatever, right? Yeah. And so being able to have those deep conversations with actual people that you trust and you love and you connect with, um, that's a really important thing because you know there there's also like the idea that you are only as sick as your secrets, and so sometimes people will say that in the self help world and. You know, if you're going around and I'm not casting judgment, I'm more trying to diagnose the issue uh, in a non-clinical way, right? Okay. If you're constantly going around and being like, hey, I'm doing great and everything's amazing and whatever. And then, you know, at the same time, you come home every day and you cry yourself to sleep, you create a big disparity. Like you're you're saying like, I guess subconsciously, you're probably thinking to yourself, I'm a fraud, right? And so that fraudulentness or whatever you want to call it is is that is the sort of manifestation of that idea. Uh, you're only as sick as your secrets, right? And so that disparity creates a lot of negative emotions within you. So getting back to answering the question, it's like, you need to be able to have those real conversations with real people. Mm -hmm. That way you can maintain um, some similarity between what you present to the world and who, who you are on the inside. And you're not having these feelings that are inside you that are just you know festering all day long. The last piece I think of the puzzle, right, is like, even though, or, or I guess the last piece of my answer to this question is, even though it is important to have those relationships and you need social support and all those things can be very beneficial for your mental health, uh, kind of alluded to it earlier on, right? Is, which is, even though those relationships are important, uh, they are not supposed to be a replacement for like a therapist or a professional right. if you feel you need that person, right? Um you know, your friends, like my friends probably love me, your friends probably love you. And to the listener, like mm -hmm. their friends love them as well. Right. Um, but, I, but it's, it's not our job. It's not our responsibility to be the therapist for one of our friends right. and, and vice versa. Right. It is not my friend's responsibility to be my therapist. We can have those, those conversations that I talked about that are important to kind of, let's say air out the dirty laundry or whatever. But if you know, it's, it's hard to exactly say where the the sliding scale goes, but it's mm -hmm. like, let's just say if you, you know, if you are leaning on somebody four hours a day, 
uh, for your, your, you know, your mental health and having these deep conversations or whatever, that that's probably too much, right? Where it's like, you want to have these conversations once in a while. That's amazing. That is a, a, a normal part of your support system. Mm-hmm. However, if it grows to an unmanageable level or, or if you are, you know, you still need a lot more support then that's where it's like, you either need to stay with your therapist or you need to find a therapist or whatever. Mm-hmm. So again, I, I give long answers and I apologize for that, but yeah, that's that, that, that's how I think about this stuff in general. Absolutely. And like, personally, it's very important for me to have the right support team. So I I need people to pour effective things into me, not host a pity party for me. That's very important around my, my support system, but you are absolutely correct. Um, I have what I call a toolbox, not a physical toolbox, but yeah. like mental health um, type box where, you know, I think about things. I have like self-care in there, um, certain people, my support team, but I also have coping mechanisms because sometimes my support team, they may be with their family. They may be going through their own things. So I can go back in here and say, you know, last time I was feeling like this, when I had this thought, I did X, Y, Z. So I can go back to that that wellness kit, I guess is what you can say. But yes, absolutely, really important for me. absolutely. Yeah. Um, I will sometimes call that my mental health toolkit, and I think it's yeah. it's a really important point to bring up because if you look at it from the perspective of like we have no idea what situations we're going to face in our own life, mm-hmm. the main thing is we want to be prepared for those various situations. So if we find ourselves right, like by ourselves at a job interview or out in the forest or somewhere where like we do not have access to our social support, mm-hmm. then we need some of those other tactics that you alluded to, right? So it's like, okay, to be able to say, look, nobody's around. I still got to do this on my own. Go into that mental health toolkit and pull something out that is going to help you in that specific situation. So that's why I love that the notion of like a holistic approach, right? Because yeah. there are so many different obstacles that we come across in life. Sometimes we'll have our friends and family and sometimes we'll have their support. Other times we won't. Sometimes we'll be in a specific kind of situation where we can you know, leverage one kind of tac- tactic and in another one, we won't. So it's like, I talk a lot about how it's like, if you are stressed out, you know, we, we mentioned this a little bit, um, I will go to the gym, I'll, I'll work out. But- if you're stressed out all day and then you go to the gym and then you're stressed out again, you you can't go to the gym like seven times a day. Right. So it's like managing all these different kinds of scenarios, feelings, uh, and situations that, that you find yourself in. Absolutely. All right. So lastly, um, I have, um, you have two, two books, get out of your head. You have volumes one and two. Can you tell people where they can, um, purchase your books from? Sure. So the best place to find everything would be on my website, which is getoutofyourhead.com. So that's all one word. There's no dashes, no spaces in that. Getoutofyourhead.com. Um, the books, you can find them if, if you look on the various retailers, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Apple Books, and stuff like that. Um, I usually just point people to the website because it's like uh, it's a, a URL that is easy to remember. And then mm-hmm. all the content is in there. There's links to you know, the various resources, the books, some merch, my blog and stuff like that. Okay. All right. So what I will do, if it's okay with you, in my 
YouTube content, I will link your website for people who come back to watch later in case they want to just kind of um, want to force check out the interview. But if they want to definitely check out about your books, merchandise, those different things. So if that's okay, I'll make sure to put that information into YouTube information. I would never object to that. Okay. All right. Sounds good. Okay. Well, thank you for your time. This has been a very um, insightful, insightful interview, especially the CBT part for me. So I'm definitely going to check out some reading um, reading materials while I'm um, close by just to do some, some more study on that. So I appreciate your time today. Awesome. Thanks for having me. It's uh, always a fun conversation and it was a fun one with you. So absolutely. Thank you so much. And you enjoy your weekend. You too. You take care. Thank you.